The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. My name is James Birch, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Good evening, Father. Hello, Jim. Uh, tonight we are going to uh, take on a few more viewer questions, and these questions uh, tend to center around um, issues regarding the finding a traditional Latin Mass and uh, how to attend uh, Mass, where they might find... Uh, missiles, Bibles, and uh, maybe a question or two even about um, some matters of faith. And the first uh, email that we're going to take a look at tonight is from a subscriber in the San Diego area. And he says that the mass, mass that he sees in his parish is spiritually devoid. And he's wondering if, uh, Father, you might know where he can find a pre-Vatican II Mass service in the area. Well, Jim, uh, not one that I could uh, send him to offhand. Uh, it's been quite a long time since I've been in the San Diego area. And um, I, uh, I don't know offhand, but I, I will uh, look into it for him. And if he'd uh, keep in touch with us, I'll try to get some good information for him. Um, you know, in, in former times, our country was missionary territory. And it wasn't that long ago. And the Catholic people uh, living in those mission, uh, missionary parts of the country might not see a priest for a month or two or six months at a time. Some cases not even uh, for a year at a time. But of course they would not go to anything but the, but the true Mass. You know, they wouldn't go down to the next village to go to a Presbyterian Mass or a Congregationalist Mass or a... Uh, or a uh, an Episcopal Mass though, service, uh, or, or to an Episcopalian service, <clears throat> because they were Catholic and they insisted that they could only take part in Catholic worship, which is absolutely true. So even today, we have people who drive uh, half an hour, an hour, two hours, driving past perhaps a dozen Novus Ordo parishes, or faith communities, as they call them sometimes, refusing to go to a Novus Ordo because they know that's not the Catholic Mass. <clears throat> They'll drive all that way and pass all of these Novus Ordo liturgies just for the sake of going to the traditional Mass, the true Mass of the Catholic Church. So uh, our writer here might find that uh, the, the closest real Mass to him would be an hour or a two-hour drive. Um, but even at that, to go when he can, to make that drive when he can would be what he should do is to find the true mass and at any in any case not succumb to going to any any substitute because there is no substitute for the mass it is the sacrifice of calvary offered in uh, adoration and uh, reparation thanksgiving and saints and 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 supplication to god or it is not you know and there's nothing in between so <clears throat> His question is a very good question. He has to find the traditional Mass offered by a true traditional priest and, uh, if possible, attend that. And you just answered, actually, the second part of his question as well, which is whether he should endure the uh, so-called Mass as it is now or, or wait to find a traditional Mass. Um, and the next person uh, who has a question uh, has found a traditional Mass to go to. They're going to be new to going to the traditional Mass. And they're a bit apprehensive uh, because they do not understand Latin. And their question is, um, what should I do regarding returning to Mass so that I can deepen my understanding of God's Word and the Latin Mass? Is there a Bible you'd recommend that has the Latin and English translation side by side? Well, there are what Catholics know as missiles. Uh, we have the large missile that the priest uses on the altar, the Missale Romanum. But the people had missiles made just for them. And uh, they would have the, the traditional Latin Mass and all of its prayers contained there in the missile on one side. 
And on the opposite, or the facing page, they would have the English, or French, or Spanish, or whatever their native language was. And uh, this obviously is a native English-speaking person, so they would be looking for a, a Latin English missile. And uh, you know, there, there are some that are better than others. The Father Lassant's missile was very good. Uh, the um, St. Andrew's daily missile is also very good. They tend to be rather expensive now, uh, but they're well worth it. Well worth the price. And you can probably find some brand new St. Andrew's missiles for $100 or perhaps a little less, I hope. And the Father Lassant's also is available. Uh, St. Bonaventure Publications in uh, Montana uh, does have some, or did have some available. I, I assume they still do or know where they can be gotten. Um, so if they'd like the uh, way to contact St. Bonaventure Publications in, uh, in uh, Great Falls or Black Eagle, Eagle, Montana, we can get them in touch there. Um, but for that matter, uh, in the religious goods store here with our own Immaculate Conception Church. We have missiles available. And uh, if he would want to follow through and let us know that uh, he or she would like uh, to get a copy, a brand new copy of the, uh, you know, one of the best uh, traditional Catholic missiles, we can, we can make sure he gets that. Uh, all he has to do is let us know. And the, um, for someone who, who may not be familiar with it, the there are different uh, missiles. There's also St. Joseph's daily mm -hmm. missile, and mm -hmm. there's simpler forms of the missiles. Um, they all contain, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, the mass in English and in Latin, and most of them also would contain all of the epistles and gospels, both mm -hmm. in English and Latin uh, as well. The difference might be in that uh, St. Andrew's missile would contain a, a lot more commentary about the Feast of the Day and etc. a lot more explanations mm -hmm. in it than some of the other missiles might. Right. There's a, a very, very good section as a tutorial on the liturgy uh, throughout the year, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot of information, uh, catechetical information also in the St. Andrews. You, you'll see a difference between the Sunday Missile and the Daily Missile. The Sunday Missiles contain the Masses, uh, the prayers of the Mass for Sundays and the feast days only. The daily missiles will contain the prayers for the Mass of every single day of the church year. Uh, that is far preferable to have a daily missile. Um, you'll also find that uh, one has to be aware of the date of the missile. If you go to the local Goodwill or um, uh, one of the used um, clothing and uh, appliances stores around the area, you'll find uh, a book section, generally, and sometimes in those book sections you'll find some old missiles. Uh, but maybe not old enough, because the changes began in earnest in the mid-1950s. Uh, in fact, uh, one can obtain a missile dated 1954, 1955, that will already have significant changes in the missiles. Um, these were preparatory to the Novus Ordo, part of the, of the process of changing to the New Order liturgy. And um, the first thing changed was the rite of uh, the Holy Week. The modernists actually predicted, they boasted, if we can, if we can uh, change the ceremonies of the Church uh, of Holy Week, the holiest week of the year, we can change everything. And they were exactly right. And so back in the 1930s and 40s, they already had set their sights on changing the prayers of Holy Week and especially the Triduum, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. And they succeeded. They succeeded in ramming these changes through, even in the 1950s, during the last years of the reign of Pope Pius XII. And somehow they succeeded in getting these changes through even though Pope Pius XII had gone on record as saying that he was against the whole idea of archaeologism in the liturgy, that is, trying to reconstitute primitive liturgies and bringing in primitive practices, he, he wrote an encyclical saying that this was the wrong approach, this was not right, and yet uh, by the end of his reign they succeeded in ramming these changes through. And they proved themselves correct that no sooner had they gotten those changes through, they went to work on the rest of the prayers of the, of the Mass. And so um, 
by the time Pope Pius XII died and John XXIII was elected, um, the, the change agents had gotten control. Through John XXIII, uh, they began this rapid succession of changes, uh, leading right on through to Paul VI and the, and the, and the new mass. We, the priests of the Society of St. Pius V, do not accept those changes. <clears throat> uh, even some of the early changes might seem relatively benign, relatively um, innocuous compared to the changes that came in with the, the New Order Mass, so called. <clears throat> but all of those changes throughout the entire process, from 1948 to 1968, were based on the same principles. We were given the same reasons for the whole series of changes that came in. And uh, so it's the principles, the modernist principles of the liturgy that we reject here. So we reject all of those changes that were made on the basis of those, uh, those same principles, even going back to, you know, early 1950s. Uh, if we accept those changes, and there are priests who do, there are actually traditional priests who accept the 1962 liturgy with the changes of John the Twenty-Third, there are some who use some of the nineteen sixty changes, uh, and so on. But using those is validating the principles with which not only those changes were made, but but all the later changes were made too. So we simply can't admit the principles uh, because they can see that they contain the seeds of destruction of the sacred liturgy. Um, so when you're looking for a missile. You want to be sure to try to find a missile that is about the year 1950, 1951, 1952, uh, because that will still have the old traditional rite of Holy Week, especially the sacred Triduum, the days before Easter and Easter Sunday. And uh, you'll, you'll find the, uh, the benefits of the traditional liturgy without it already being tainted by the, the, the early changes. And um, <clears throat> our next... Uh subscriber uh, has a question about prayer, which kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that we're talking about missiles and it contains the greatest prayer there is, which is the Holy Mass. And their question is, uh, several parts to it, but the first question is, how does God want us to pray? Well, God wants us to pray uh, such that we actually fulfill the very definition of prayer, right? Uh, St. Augustine taught us that prayer is the lifting up of one mind, one's mind and heart to God. And the, the mind we represent by our intelligence, our attention, our attention and our understanding are directed toward God. And the heart signifies the will, which is where we make the act of love for God. So essentially to pray is to turn one's attention to God, his divine presence, and to be aware even of his awareness of us. We're not just thinking of him as quite an object of our attention, but that he is a knowing, loving. He is the knowing and the loving person, uh, divine being, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So we know that we know God not as we would know a chair or a table, as an object that cannot know us back, but rather when we turn our attention to God, we turn our attention as a knowing and loving being, and actually infinitely knowing and infinitely loving. Uh, we don't have to think all of that out loud and explicitly when we do turn our attention to God, um, but our attention has to be, a, a, we have to be attentive of God as he is, for who he is, right? as the Supreme Being who made all things, including ourselves. We look to him, uh, leaving aside the, uh, the clamor of the world, the distractions of the world. And so we focus our attention on Almighty God. And we follow that attention with an act of love. Unless we are doing that, we're not praying. We can rattle off uh, prayers, we can vocalize the words of prayers, um, but you can play a recording, or you can even teach a, uh, uh, you know, a minor bird or a, or a parrot to make the sounds. Um, but that obviously is not praying. Uh, prayer really comes down to the human being uh, turning one's mind and heart to God, and one doesn't need words to do that. 
So uh, turning one's mind and heart to God is prayer, even if it's without words. But words without that cannot be prayer. It's just making noises. When, when you mentioned an act, making an act of love, you're not literally talking about the prayer here. You, can you describe, maybe for our viewers, what do you mean when you say you're turning your attention to God and making an act of love? Can you describe that a little bit more? Well, uh, prayer has to be motivated by love for God. Um, so the, the faculties of our soul that uh, make us like God, this is where the principle, the image of God resides in us, is our ability to know what is true and to love what is good. I've mentioned that before. And the fact that we can do that, know what is true as true, and love what is good as good, enables us to do what God does, okay? Um, only when he does it with intellect and will, uh, his divine intellect and divine will are infinitely powerful. So uh, the very first act of his divine intellect is his own knowledge of himself, infinitely, perfectly. And that is so powerful, an act of self-knowledge, that it actually begets his own perfect uh, divine image of the Father who is the Son, is the Word of God, he's his own self-expression, you might say, as a separate person, still a divine person who is actually by nature God. And uh, the act of love of the divine will, uh, infinitely powerful between the Father and the Son, breathes forth the divine person of the Holy Ghost. A divine person, the divine being, one with the Father and the Holy Ghost, and yet a distinct person by an act of the divine will. Now, you and I cannot do that, of course, because our intellects and our wills, although they are, in the, uh, they are given to us by God, we are designed with these things by God, uh, they are finite as creatures. They can't be any other way. They, they have to be finite. And so um, God knows us and loves us such that in a way that we can never know him and never love him uh, because we do not have infinitely powerful intellects and wills. Um, but we can uh, love him and know him with all of our powers of knowing and loving. And the curious thing about this, you know, one would ordinarily have a certain limitation on the amount of love or the intensity of love we can have by the, that would be limited by the, how much we can know of the other person. Um, but here on earth, we can actually love God with a greater love than knowledge, than the knowledge we have. As St. Paul says, uh, we see now through a glass in a dark manner. And so our faith is necessarily limited. Our intellectual understanding of who God is is necessarily limited because we don't see God. And yet, God can draw us beyond the knowledge of faith, as the mystics say, to not just see, we can't see God. We hear God, we hear of him, we hear the mysteries of our faith, but that we can almost have a taste of the goodness of God here which goes beyond the, the mere knowledge that comes to us from reading the Catechism. And God drawing us on can enable us actually to love him in a way that surpasses even our ability to know him in this world. And ultimately, St. Paul says that uh, faith will fall away. In heaven, when we see God face to face, as he says, then I will know even as I am known. Um, our, our faith will fall away because then we will not have to believe any longer. We will see uh, what, the, what was the object of our faith all that time. And uh, then our hope will fall away too because we no longer have to simply hope someday to possess this. We will actually possess this. But he says that the one thing that we will have, that we will take into eternity with us, and even into the beatific vision of God in heaven with us, is our love for God. And that love will not have to be left behind. Quite the contrary, it'll be purified, perfected, made complete, and that will be the, uh, uh, you might say, the key to entering heaven. Uh, it is that 
purification process is going on in purgatory right now. And uh, ideally, we should accomplish that by the grace, by cooperating with the grace of God, even in this life. And that's why prayer is indispensable, because it is through prayer that we actually turn our thoughts to God. <clears throat> we, we want him to draw us on in our greater and deeper knowledge of him that surpasses merely the dogmas, the propositions of faith. And um, we want him to increase our love for God. Uh, in fact, our, our, our daily prayer should be this, that we may love him with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. This is our objective. It is only then that we actually can fulfill the first great commandment of loving him as he ought to be loved. Not as he deserves to be loved. He deserves to be loved infinitely. But he ought to be loved by us with all of our powers of loving. This is what we all have to aspire to, loving him with all of our powers of loving. It is only then when we succeed in doing that we, that we can love our neighbors, as he said at the Last Supper, as he has loved us. And uh, then and only then will we actually ever be able to fulfill all the commandments of God, uh, when we love him completely. And, and then and only then can we actually enter heaven. That begins here on earth by prayer. Um, that um, desire, that longing, that request to love God perfectly really is the essence of prayer and the inspiration for prayer. Um, I don't know if that really addresses your question or not, but I thought it No, it, it does, um, and it's, it's very interesting that you talked about daily we should pray to, um, to God to increase our, our love of him because the next part of the question here asks, besides the Our Father, the Rosary, and our petitions, are there certain prayers and devotions that Catholics should say daily? So you, you've answered oh, it to yeah. some extent already. Um, if there's anything else you'd like to add to that, and that this, the second part of the question yeah. is uh, the opposite, are there certain prayers that we should avoid? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, there are certain prayers that every Catholic should pray daily. Uh, we are here in the church militant, okay? Meaning that this is the church fighting. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for souls. You know? um, we have the imagery given to us in sacred scripture and by the church uh, through our sacred tradition that when our Lord came to the earth, he came to establish a kind of beachhead. <laughs> you, know, you think about uh, perhaps uh, <clears throat> the Normandy invasion uh, when the continent of Europe was completely dominated by the Nazi power. Uh, the power of, of the National Socialists. <clears throat> and uh, so we had to cross the channel and fight our way onto shore and establish a narrow strip of land on which we could set up and begin the reconquest, as it were, of Europe from the neo-pagan uh, National Socialists under Hitler as opposed to the World Socialists of the Bolsheviks under Stalin, right? And um, our Lord was essentially bringing the kingdom of heaven, as he called it, the kingdom of God, uh, to establish that here on earth, which was in enemy territory, it was under the control of Satan, the prince of darkness. He had control, and our Lord established his church here and sent his apostles out on a mission of conquest okay, into the whole world. And that was an effort to reclaim souls from the power of Satan, to uh, return, be, be justified of their sin, break their bondage to Satan, and then be sanctified and finally saved. So it is a kind of military conquest um, that our Lord has actually launched here on this earth. You know? <clears throat> so we here are, we belong to the church fighting. And... Uh, if we're not fighting, we've already we've surrendered. You know, we're missing in action. We're prisoners of war. But if we're not fighting. There's something wrong. <laughs> so uh, we have to be fighting against Satan and his works. So every Catholic every day should pray the simple prayer of exorcism, which we know as the prayer to Saint Michael the Archangel. Um, <clears throat> we should be invoking 
the protection of St. Michael the Archangel as this great warrior spirit who cast Lucifer out of, out of the heavens and uh, cast him down to earth. Uh, we should be using the prayers that God has given to us also to strengthen us. We have a host of allies in heaven already, right? Who have succeeded in gaining the security of that, uh, of that fair land of the beatific vision and who actually can, that they actually watch us from the vantage point of heaven. They actually see us as we are in the mind of God, which they can now see, as St. Paul says. We can see face to face Almighty God in his divine spirit. And he doesn't say this, but we can surmise that we can see in God the creation. We Catholics understand that bond we have. We have the communion of saints, and we have a bond with the souls in purgatory, and we have a bond with the souls in heaven right now. We may not think about it theologically very often, but every Catholic from the time he's a little child learns to invoke the saints, and rightly so, that if we lose something, we immediately think of asking St. Anthony's help. And we immediately think of St. Anthony's help with the implicit understanding that St. Anthony actually hears us, knows what we need, understands the situation, and can actually help us. And he sees what we need, what we're looking for. <clears throat> is that theologically correct? And the answer is, yes, it is. Why? Because we Catholics believe that the saints in heaven actually see God, <clears throat> as St. Paul says, and they can see within the divine mind which sustains all in existence, including you and me, and even the keys that I've lost somewhere, that St. Anthony has a view, he sees that in the divine mind, much more clearly than you and I can here, and that he can help, and that he does know more perfectly, because now he knows through the knowledge of God in heaven, and he loves more, more completely, because not only is his own love complete, wholehearted, and entire love for God, but now he actually loves in union with the love of God that God has for us. And so, yes, he does have a, a care for us here. I think the lack of understanding, of this understanding of heaven and the intimate union between the saints in heaven with God is the problem that, uh, is, is the, let's say, the root of the problem that so many non-Catholics have with understanding our devotion to the saints. They don't understand the relationship between the saints in heaven and Almighty God. If they would understand that, they would understand why we see them as such great allies. And so we should be praying to these saints every day. What are we praying for? Basically praying for their prayers. Um, <clears throat> we're asking them to aid us. Uh, they now have a complete and unsullied love for God. <clears throat> and that's what they want for us. And they can, by the grace of God, assist us as we go through this warfare that they have already been through. They fought their way through. They were faithful. They are now saved. They are secure in heaven. Uh, they want us to be saved, too. They want us to join them. And so uh, they are great allies in this, in this warfare. So we should definitely be praying for their help. Uh, we realize that we who do not have that perfect love for God now, have every reason to appeal to them who do have that perfect love. Uh, we ask them to, in a sense, represent us before the throne of God in heaven. Can they pray for us? Absolutely. The idea that the saints in heaven can no longer pray is absurd, <clears throat> because now they can pray as they, as they were unable to pray ever before. But that perfect union of the beatific vision that they have with God, that's what they do. That is a union of prayer. Their minds and their hearts are so beautifully united, intimately united with the, the intellect and the will of God, that this is the very essence of what they do. They pray, and in the process of their praying, they are th thrilled with the splendor of God's beauty. They're just filled with a sense of the, of the divine beauty of God, and the beauty of the saints. I mean, they see the beauty of Our Lady, the Blessed Mother, and the glory of the saints, and they realize 
that they not only see this, but the others see it in them too. They're part of this. They actually contribute to it. You know, they're not just there as some kind of a uh, an accessory. Uh, they're not just there as an audience in the stands. They're part of this now, and it's a wonderful thing for them to to realize this and have that life, be part of that life. They want us very much to have that life too. Um, and so knowing that their desire for our salvation is now united with our Lord's desire for our salvation, um, we, we should seek their help. So it all gets back to this. I guess I'm making kind of a roundabout way of saying we should be asking the saints, especially those with whom we can identify, those who had our profession in life, right? Um, who knew the temptations and the struggles and fought through them by the grace of God, they know who we are. For example, you as an attorney, you, you would normally turn to St. Uh, Thomas More, right? Who understands the attorney's life and the temptations involved uh, with being an attorney and also the graces that are given to attorneys to do what the good that they can for God's, for their God's sake and the sake of the souls God loves and to be in that particular service to God. You know, you as a married man, you know, you would turn to um, the, those who would represent uh, father, uh, uh, being, being a husband and uh, maybe stand out in your mind in, in the teaching of the church for the qualities of being a husband. You could turn to St. John the Baptist who gave his life for the sanctity of the marriage vows, even though he himself was not married. Uh, you could turn to St. Joseph, obviously. Um, as a father, you would also, you know, be looking for those who uh, distinguish themselves in their devotion to the salvation of their children. Um, so, just by way of example, this is what you could do. Um, ultimately, though, beyond all of these others, what inspires you to pray <coughs> is... The fact that your great love is our Lord, is Almighty God, and what you want is a perfect love for God. Uh, asking the help of all of these saints now in heaven who have that perfect love for God is not detracting you or distracting you from it, because the single motivation you have in all of this is what love you have for God and the desire to love him more. So we don't find prayer to the saints distracting. Uh, quite the contrary, uh, they're all like signposts directing us to our Lord and love for him. So if the question is, you know, what prayer should we pray every day? I would say, you know, focus on that. Uh, obviously, if you're going to attend Mass every day, that's the greatest prayer because there at the Mass, you're actually uniting yourself with our Lord in his sacrifice for you. Uh, the prayer of Calvary, as he prays on the cross for mercy for you. And you're there uniting your, your, yourself and your prayer with him. That's the best thing we could do. The ideal way to attend the Mass, as the popes have always said, is to follow the actual prayers of the Mass. I mean, you can pray the rosary. And that is a worthy way to attend the Mass. Um, because, again, in the rosary, you're contemplating the mysteries of the life of our Lord. You can uh, pray and contemplate the, the passion of our Lord, you know, uh, even reading in the Gospels accounts of the passion of our Lord. Again, these prayers, these thoughts are directing you to our Lord. But the way the church prefers, above all, is that you follow the prayers of the Mass as the, as the Mass progresses. So you can unite yourself with the priest at the altar, who is uniting himself with our Lord in his sacrifice. Uh, obviously, praying the rosary every day is indispensable. The priests, even those who are actually ordained subdeacon long before they are ordained, a year before they are ordained to the priesthood, they, um, they have the divine office to pray. Okay? And the divine office essentially is sacred scripture. Uh, the bulk of that is the Psalms. Okay? But then there are other prayers also from sacred scripture, uh, for the most part. And uh, the lay people do not pray the Psalter ordinarily, do not ordinarily pray the divine office. 
But the rosary is considered to be sort of the lay person's answer to the divine office that the clergy pray. Um, so that is something that is indispensable in a Catholic life. Uh, if I may digress, I know it's rare for me to digress, but uh, this is one of those exceptional moments when I would like to appeal to our Catholic listeners. Um, <clears throat> please, especially you dads, okay? You moms also, but in particular way you dads. <clears throat> if you want to discourage your children from praying the rosary, if you want to make them grow up thinking, I'll never do that, you know, then here's what you do. When it comes time to pray the rosary, <clears throat> make it sound as though it's really distasteful, as though you're just forcing yourself to do it, even though it's kind of a nuisance and you've got so many other things that are more important. You're going to grit your teeth and Get your kids together, uh, yelling at them <laughs> to get in there now because you've got to pray the rosary and make it sound as though it is sort of like boot camp uh, for the Marines. It's something you just have to tough out. You know? If you can make it as unpleasant as possible and make it seem as unpleasant as possible, you can guarantee yourself that your kids will avoid it at all costs and they will not be praying the rosary. <clears throat> But if you can, even if you feel it's that way, even if you think, oh, I've got so much to do, and here I've got to take the time to pray the rosary, even if you feel that way, you shouldn't. It's not a labor of love, then. But <clears throat> you want to portray to your children that it is a labor of love, that it is a blessing, that it is a grace from God, that it is a privilege that God is allowing you to do this. You want them to see it as something beautiful and loving and delightful is what you want. Not drudgery, but delightful. And that's how you should approach it yourself. And you should, you know, by your demeanor and the way you um, not only pray the rosary while you're praying it, but how you even get the family together, how you present it to them, is very, very important. And I, I don't know that I need to go into detail. I, I guess I think you can figure out what I'm saying. But if the father um, makes it appear as though he has to force himself to pray the rosary because it's the last thing in the world he really wants to do. And he's just on edge and kind of nasty even if the kids are yawning or if they're slouching down or whatever and he's barking orders at them because he's just conveying his own frustration and irritation uh, with the whole scenario, that is going to poison the children's mind against the rosary. But if the father approaches the rosary as a very important part of his own life, and he really wants to offer this prayer to God, and he realizes the importance of it, the children will learn not that it is a, a bitter duty that has to be fulfilled, um, even though it's, it's the last thing in the world we want to do, but the children will actually come without complaint and they will join him in that prayer and they will draw from him a love for the rosary. And he will be teaching them not only to how to pray the rosary, but he'll be teaching them to pray the rosary. And that's the most important lesson a father can, can give his children. Well, even the, um, the, the uh, cadence, the speed at which it's said can be important, right? Not just, not just trying to rush through it. Uh, or at the same time, you know, that might be what... Uh, father who's trying to, to get on to something else might do, or or the opposite, which might be a mother who says it and and is saying every syllable of every word very slowly, because well, that's very true. either way, I mean, we're speaking to God, we're, we're not trying to... Um, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right about that. Either extreme is bad. I mean, sometimes you hear the children, when you ask the children to leave the rosary, and they'll just take off, and the, the words, it's like one long word, no, no breath... Uh, and they just, I can't even say it as fast as some of the kids just say it routinely. You can't distinguish the words because they're saying it so fast, so quickly. And it's clear they have, their, their minds are a thousand miles away. They have no idea what they're saying and they have no care for what they're saying. <clears throat> and I find myself asking, do they pray this way at home? 
if their parents do get them to pray the rosary with them, do, do the parents, number one, let the children lead the rosary this way when they lead a decade of the rosary? Do the parents themselves pray the rosary that way? <clears throat> uh, it's not only mindless, it's heartless. And so you can have somebody who just, you think their lips are going to burst into flames, they're, they're, they're saying the words so fast, they're quickly to get through it. Um, or on the other hand, those who, as you say, say it very dramatically and very slowly, as though we are meant to draw this out, and as though that somehow adds to the devotion. Um, actually, what it does, it's very distracting. Normally, very distracting for people. And seems in a real interminable um, exercise for the children. No. As normal speech, pray the rosary. I mean, if we're going to speak to each other in a certain way, we should not uh, pray the rosary as though we were auctioneers, uh, as though we were trying to auction something off to God. Um, nor should we pray the rosary in slow motion. But we should pray the rosary as we speak, and so that it will not be distracting. Uh, pronounce every word. Uh, don't slur the words. Don't run them together. And don't drag them out. Um, and insist that the children do also. If the children are, are kind of uh, thinking, well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to play this uh, 33 and a third RPM record at 45 or even 78. A lot of people these days don't know what that's about, I guess. Um, slow them down. Tell them, no, that's not respectful. If we're going to pray, we're going to pray. We're going to be respectful. And I want you to follow the pace that I set because I'm trying to, to show you what true prayer is and what respect is for God. So we're going to all pray the rosary together. We're going to follow the same pace. And then the father and the mother have to set that example. What about the use of, um, there are some of these nice picture books that go with the rosary for maybe the younger children or even children who are a little bit older who might get distracted. What do you think about the use of those? Are the pictures for each of the ten uh, Hail Marys during the rosary? Those are fine. Those are really, really good because everybody, no matter, no matter how old one is, uh, everyone has an imagination that is rather untamed to one extent or another. But especially the children, they need something to focus on. And if you can get these oversized holy card type pictures that show, that depict the mysteries of the rosary, those are, those are wonderful. I, I've seen families that have them like a, a big easel and they flip them. And even the children take turns turning them over. And that, that keeps the children actively engaged in the rosary and mindful of the scene that's before their eyes. Um. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't think that it was a, a digression by you to, to talk about this because, I mean, we are talking about the, the topic of prayer, um, but we didn't necessarily get to the, uh, the second part of the question. Um, are there certain prayers that we should avoid? Uh, and by the way, Jim, if I may just back up for one minute. Um, when I say getting through the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the glory be to the Father of the Rosary, <clears throat> sometimes seems like a, a real race, you know. The sign of the cross. Obviously, we, we need to pray the sign of the cross many times during the day. Um, it is a prayer unto itself. It is a profession of faith. It's the doxology, right? We are, we are professing our belief in the two fundamental mysteries of, of our faith in the Blessed Trinity and the Incarnation and the Crucifixion and Redemption, all at once by the sign of the cross. But time and time again, you will find that people have gotten into the very bad habit. <clears throat> they say the sign of the cross, and before they're finished, they're just basically, they've forgotten about it. Right? So they're just saying the end. Yeah. There was the end. And... In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and then they, you know, they, they say the end words, but it's clear that it's over, you know. And uh, we have the tendency in the classrooms, you know. And the children, the children were compiling back in after summer vacation. And they're standing by their desk and they're praying. But by the time, before they get to the amen, they're already, they've dropped into their desks and they're opening their books. And so I have to tell them, no, 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 no. No, we're not going to do that here. Okay. We're going to stand up and we're going to finish that prayer. All the way to the amen. 
We're going to finish the sign of the cross, and then we go. We get on to the next thing. We're not going to be just making it clear we have no clue as to what, what we're doing. Um, and it's a matter of training. You know? So <clears throat> just as you find that tendency, natural as it is, in human beings to want to get on with it, with our prayers, we have to resist that tendency. And we have to teach children to be mindful that they're praying. And that includes even making the sign of the cross. Make them stand there, finish the sign of the cross uh, respectfully, and then go about their business. And um, part of it's even uh, getting an understanding of the idea, because I think too often what happens is, is that it becomes the sign of the cross just means we're starting and we're ending. <laughs> right, right. right. And, and so That's true. people need to understand that the sign of the cross is a prayer. And in fact, if we're talking about prayers during the day, if you don't have time for anything else, you could say a prayer by making the sign of the cross during the day. And that is a complete prayer in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's the most fundamental prayers, actually. Most fundamental of Catholic prayers right there. Um, so, um, you know, it doesn't take as long to direct our attention and our affection to God. And even if we do that for a matter of a second or two in making the sign of the cross, we've just prayed. And you can pray very deeply uh, with that and nothing more. So please teach the children that that is a prayer. It's not just on your market set go and the end. Um, But as far as the prayers that we shouldn't pray, well, obviously we shouldn't pray anything heretical. Okay. um, Unfortunately, there are a lot of prayers floating around these days that uh, have a very Novus Ordo sound to them. Uh, They sound sound modern. They sound contrived. They sound um, like even the vocabulary doesn't seem respectful to God, you know. They began breaking down that respect when they left behind the thou's and the these and the thine. Uh, very simple thing the children were taught, but it became a part of their, their, their whole attitude of prayer. It was one more small thing that they incorporated in their prayers that indicated to them that we're praying here because we're departing from our normal pattern of speech with <clears throat> My mom, my dad, my teacher, my friend Herbie, and my little brother. <clears throat> and it, it did also help just create in the mind an atmosphere of prayer. These terms of respect. <clears throat> they abandoned those. <clears throat> they deprived, they, they actually almost forcibly took them away from us. Uh, changed the pattern of prayer of people in the 1950s and so on. And they uh, <clears throat> said, nope, now we're going to say you and you are. But at least we're going to capitalize the Y of the U, and so on. At least that, choking, that we're addressing a divine person here, right? Not just merely a creature, but our creator. But then that went away too, okay? So now, uh, you know, it's as though you can be talking to God the way you're talking to your friend across the clothesline. Well, there's no clothesline left anymore. Uh, Talking across the, the bar, even to your bartender. Uh, sad to say, but Francis himself often reminds one of that. Um, and I just, as a lawyer, and that really strikes me because I can't imagine going into a courtroom with a judge. I mean, you're 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 you're, you're schooled before you go in there. Okay. By the fact you're yeah. going to go like, "Hey, you," or "Hey, judge," your honor, and every every time, yes, yes, your honor, no, your honor. I mean, because it does, it, it shows a sign of respect for the judge and it puts you in that mood to realize who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it would be the same thing with the prayers, exactly what you're talking about. So it's, to me, it's very disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, even when you address a judge like that, I mean, it's a very good point. Very good point, I think. Even there, when you address him, you're not addressing him as Fred Schwartz, <clears throat> if that happens to you. It's his position that you're addressing. The, the authority and the respect that you should show his position in the courtroom but when you show that respect to God, you're addressing him as the person of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. You're addressing as a divine being. <clears throat> Even addressing the judge in this way, he could be a, <clears throat> a scoundrel, but you show respect for the office. But with God, it's, it goes so far beyond that. It's not just his office as God that we've somehow appointed him 
or elected him God. It's who he is, the supreme being who made all things, who is our creator, our redeemer. If we will show respect to a judge on earth, what respect should we show to our creator? And they've taken that away, often in prayers. Um, so we should not pray prayers that are really disrespectful. Maybe not willfully so, but by default. They basically have just been sapped of respect that should be there to God. We should not join in prayers, as I mentioned, the heretical. For example, Catholics cannot legitimately join in prayers <clears throat> with Protestants that, respect, that, that reflect Protestant ideas. Um, we, that, uh, therefore, we cannot legitimately take part in any Protestant worship <coughs> because Protestant worship, by definition, as Protestant worship, has rejected the Catholic understanding of who God is and our relationship with God, which our Catholic faith teaches. Uh, <clears throat> if that is true of Protestant worship, then that is uh, absolutely true of any non-Christian worship. We should not, we cannot legitimately take part in any of that, okay? So, um, <clears throat> yes, there, there are certain prayers that we, uh, that we should not indulge in. Like, well, I mentioned the Novus Ordo. Uh, <clears throat> that is a prayer we cannot legitimately take part in. Would it be sinful? Yes, it would be sinful. Why? Because it's an insult to our Catholic faith. And um, <clears throat> at least, the very least, an implicit denial of what the Mass really is. Uh, the Mass, the true Mass, is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. The new Mass is the product of purging from the Catholic worship, that very, very notion, and taking out of the liturgy anything that would explicitly state that this is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. Does the new Mass at any point have the minister of the Mass saying, this is not the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. And if you've been taught that, give that up. That's what they used to believe. We know that's not true anymore. This is a celebratory meal. That's all this is. No, the minister ordinarily does not do that in the new Mass. And if he did, he would be taking it upon himself to ad lib. That's not officially anywhere in the new Mass nor is it in the accompanying general instruction on the Novus Ordo liturgy that came out originally as a user's manual with the new Mass. But the new Mass <clears throat> does deny the fact that the Mass is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. It, it denies that it is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary in, a, in an equally bad way, let's put it that way, forceful way. It doesn't have to come out and say, this is not, not the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. This is no longer the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. Because there has been a deliberate effort to purge from the Mass any statement that explicitly makes it clear that this is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. That took malice of forethought, that took energy, that took an enormous amount of deliberation. Uh, six Protestant ministers were called in to make sure <laughs> that the Mass was purged of any such ideas of the Mass being the sacrifice of Calvary, so that it would not offend Protestant theology, Protestant belief. So uh, there, there are explicit uh, uh, acts that purge the Mass of this. For example, if you, as I pointed out before, the prayers of the offertory, those beautiful, powerful, simple, straightforward prayers of the offertory, of the traditional Mass, which hold the host up there, right? the priest, before the priest's eyes, before the tabernacle, before the crucifix, the priest is actually focused there on that, the host and the crucifix, and asks Almighty God the Father to accept this offering. It's an oblation. <coughs> and to accept it in reparation for the sins of mankind. He starts with himself my sins, he talks about those who are present, their sins, all faithful Christians throughout the world, and not only those living at the moment, but who have ever lived or ever will live, all of those 
throughout time, that sacrifice is the sacrifice of Calvary. There's only one sacrifice that that fits that description. It offered in, in forgiveness for forgiveness of sins, in remission for sins. That is the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You could not find a more explicit tie between the, the sacrifice of the Mass, the offering of the Mass, and the sacrifice of Calvary. And then he takes the chalice, and he holds the chalice now with the wine in it, and he's asking for God's mercy. Again, the offertory prayers of the Mass are among those that explicitly tie the traditional Mass to the sacrifice of Calvary in an unmistakable uh, and uh, a way, uh, let's say, an undeniable way. Okay, Those prayers were purged. They were replaced the prayers that say nothing of the kind, nothing of this whatsoever. And so it is throughout the New Liturgy. You'll find that same purging going on. Um, that makes a statement, loud and clear, that the new Mass was never intended to be the sacrifice of Calvary. And that means it was never intended to be the Mass. We just have to face the fact. If somebody reads into the new liturgy, the idea that it is the sacrifice of Calvary, again, that's just him ad-libbing. He's saying, well, this is supposed to be the, the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, so I'll have to make up for its shortcomings by reading into it my faith. And there are no sort of clergy who do that. But they have to realize in doing that that they're using a liturgy that was designed precisely not to be the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary and was designed to completely annihilate and take out what they're now trying to put back in. Uh, they should give that up. They should not be saying that new Mass. It is not the work of the Church. It couldn't be the work of Church because it couldn't be the work of Christ. Um, it is the work of the enemies of the Church. One should not say the new Mass. One should not attend the new Mass. That, above all, <laughs> one should not, a Catholic should not pray that. Now, one might object and say, but the new Mass is a sacrifice. <clears throat> it says it many times. Sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving over and over again. That's for those who are actually following the prayers of the new liturgy and not just ad living. And I would say that that's true. And that's exactly what Martin Luther said his service would be. Nothing but a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But you know what is clearly lacking is any statement that this is a sacrifice of reparation for sin. And then one would say, well, wait a minute now. <clears throat> when we get to the prayers of consecration, <clears throat> when the priest says, this is my body and this is my blood which we offered for you, right? So that sins may be forgiven. Well, that, that clearly makes the point, right? <clears throat> that this new liturgy is the sacrifice of Calvary. And say, no, you're interpreting it that way. <clears throat> but what that is saying is that Jesus offered the sacrifice on Calvary for remission for sins. But that is not saying that this is that sacrifice. All that you're saying here at this table <clears throat> is that you're remembering that he offered that sacrifice long ago and far away. But again, Nowhere are you saying that this is that sacrifice. As any Protestant services would remember that Jesus offered himself on Calvary for the forgiveness of sins. That doesn't, that remembering the fact does not mean that what they're doing there is the sacrifice of Calvary. Any more than it means that the new mass is the sacrifice of Calvary. It's simply a remembrance, a memorial service. And the one I say, well, I, I'm a little fuzzy on that. Uh, I think I understand your point, but I'm not convinced. And I say, well, look, <clears throat> you're still calling those words the words of consecration. Officially, in the new liturgy, they are, they are not called the words of consecration anymore. Officially, in the new liturgy, they're referred to as the narrative of institution. Okay? <clears throat> a narrative is telling 
a story. That's what they've done to the what we used to know as the words of consecration. You're still thinking of them as the words of consecration. <clears throat> but officially in the new mass, they're not. They're telling the story of the Last Supper, <clears throat> primarily of the Last Supper. And uh, there is a tie, of course, to uh, our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary for the forgiveness of sins. But you have, to, you have to make that connection in your own mind between what you're doing there and what, what Jesus did on the cross because that connection is not made in the new liturgy. And furthermore, wherever it was made has been taken away. And just um, for clarification, maybe for some of our viewers who don't understand uh, the, the difference between the, the various sacrifices, those, there's a sacrifice of adoration, there's sacrifices of thanksgiving, there's sacrifices of reparation. Those go back to the Old Testament. I mean, the Jews even had specific altars that they would do the various sacrifices on. And when Christ came and said that he was there to perfect the new law, that's exactly what he did, and that's what the Mass was for. So this is something that goes back all the way to the time of Moses and when, when God gave him the, mm -hmm. the... And they would offer those sacrifices on altars, even the various sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Uh, and our Lord actually brought all those sacrifices together into one, and that was his sacrifice. And the church has always offered that on, on an altar, remembering that it is a sacrifice. The Novus Ordo has now replaced that with a table. Uh, the early church uh, would offer the sacrifice of the Mass over the relics of the martyrs to draw the connection between the, the martyr's sacrifice in union with Christ sacrificed on Calvary they don't require those, those relics of the martyrs anymore. <clears throat> now it's just a table covered by a cloth. That's all it is. Uh, the church used to have three linen, layers of linen cloth because of the presence of the precious blood there. Uh, now they've stripped that down to one cloth. <clears throat> right? uh, the priest used to consume the precious blood. Now they send uh, and every drop of that precious blood. The priest would consume and then purify the chalice. Now they bring all of these cups back, set them on the side, and deal with them afterwards, even if they're supposed to be containing what those who still have the faith, you know, pretend or convince themselves the precious blood, even though all of the activity there and the part of the minister and the other people indicates it's nothing but blessed wine. There are those who still believe that this should be the precious blood of our Lord, and that divine presence should be honored and even worshipped. <clears throat> but once they pass the cup out and, hand, and give people the drinks, they just put them on the side as though they no longer count. Again, the Lutheran idea that Christ is present there because we, the congregation, recognize his presence. He's, there, he's present there in a spiritual way for us. And when we've had our fill, then that's the end of that. Um, <clears throat> nothing really special anymore, right? So um, everything about the new Mass and all the changes that have come in were in one direction, and that is away from the sacrifice of Calvary. Um, they basically, the new Mass turns its back, basically, on the sacrifice of Calvary, uh, turns its back in the sense that it considers it an historical event of long ago and far away, and we're here to remember that. It's a memorial service. Um, so anyway, Jim... Uh, I uh, I would say that of, of all the prayers we have to avoid, that's the one that Catholics should should say um, that they that does not represent their faith uh, because it is not the sacrifice of Calvary was never intended to be the sacrifice of Calvary was actually a form of repudiation of the sacrifice of Calvary. <clears throat> it's actually very interesting that um, uh, you just talked about that because. That's where we began the show. We had the question from the gentleman whether or not he should attend the Norris Soto Mass right. or not. And, and now the question is about the prayer. Circle, yeah. that, that is correct. And, uh, and with that, we're going to conclude our show. So I thank Bye. you very much for your input tonight, Father. Certainly, Jim. Thank you. Um, I do have a couple other emails that I'm going to uh, address. They're not uh, questions per se, but they might be helpful to some of our subscribers. Um, someone uh, wrote in and asked uh, to get a copy of the booklet Mother of God. Um, we are in the process of uh, sending that out. Uh, we have the address. If anyone else would like to get a copy of that book, uh, they could email to us their address as well to the email that is now on the screen. Um, 
We are in the process of trying to make the booklet available uh, for purchase online. Uh, if you have any other questions or comments, you can also email it. And uh, the second email that I wanted to touch upon was is that uh, we had someone ask if they could make a, do a donation towards uh, the What Catholics Believe program. And um, yes, you can. Uh, the, if you would like to make a donation, you can send it to the address on the screen uh, right now. Uh, we appreciate any uh, financial help. Uh, we do have uh, some expenses that go along with the show, including the uh, setup and etc. So we uh, appreciate anyone who would be willing to donate to the program. And uh, with that, I ask you to remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima. We must pray, make sacrifice, and consecrate ourselves and our families to the Immaculate Heart. Thank you.